Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Groh, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. September 26. On this date in history, in the year 1960, Kennedy and Nixon square off in a first televised presidential debate. For the first time in U.S. history, a debate between major party presidential candidates is shown on television. The presidential hopefuls, John F. Kennedy, a Democratic senator of Massachusetts, and Richard M. Nixon, the vice president of the United States, met in a Chicago studio to discuss U.S. domestic matters. Kennedy emerged the apparent winner from this first of four televised debates, partly owing to his greater ease before the camera than Nixon, who, unlike Kennedy, seemed nervous and declined to wear makeup. Nixon fared better in the second and third debates, and on October 21, the candidates met to discuss foreign affairs in their fourth and final debate. Less than three weeks later, on November 8, Kennedy won 49.7% of the popular vote in one of the closest presidential elections in U.S. history, surpassing by a fraction the 49.6% received by his Republican opponent. One year after leaving the vice presidency, Nixon returned to politics, winning the Republican nomination for governor of California. Although he lost the election, Nixon returned to the national stage in 1968 in a successful bid for the presidency. Like Lyndon Johnson in 1964, Nixon declined to debate his opponent in the 1968 presidential campaign. Televised presidential debates returned in 1976 and have been held in every presidential campaign since. September 27. On this date in history, in the year 1869, Sheriff Wild Bill Hickok proves too wild for Kansas. Just after midnight on September 27, 1869, Ellis County Sheriff Wild Bill Hickok and his deputy respond to a report that a local ruffian named Samuel Strawn and several drunken buddies were tearing up John Bitter's Beer Saloon in Hayes City, Kansas. When Hickok arrived and ordered the men to stop, Strawn turned to attack him, and Hickok shot him in the head. Strawn died instantly, as did the riot. Such were Wild Bill's less-than-restrained law enforcement methods. Famous for his skill with a pistol, and steely calm under fire, James Butler Hickok initially seemed to be the ideal man for the sheriff of Ellis County, Kansas. The good citizens of Hayes City, the county seat, were tired of the wild brawls and destructiveness of the hard-drinking buffalo hunters and soldiers who took over their town every night. They hoped the famous Wild Bill would restore peace and order, and in the late summer of 1869, elected him as interim county sheriff. Tall, athletic, and sporting shoulder-length hair and a sweeping mustache, 
Hickok cut an impressive figure, and his reputation as a deadly shot with either hand was often all it took to keep many potential lawbreakers on the straight and narrow. As one visiting cowboy later recalled, Hickok would stand with his back to the wall, looking at everything and everybody under his eyebrows, just like a mad old bull. But when Hickok applied more aggressive methods of enforcing the peace, some Hay City citizens wondered if their new cure wasn't worse than the disease. Shortly after becoming sheriff, Hickok shot a beleaguered soldier who resisted arrest, and the man died the next day. A few weeks later, Hickok killed Strawn. While his brutal ways were indisputably effective, many Hay City citizens were less than impressed that after only five weeks in office, he had already found it necessary to kill two men in the name of preserving peace. During the regular November election later that year, the people expressed their displeasure, and Hickok lost to his deputy, 144 to 89. Though Wild Bill Hickok would later go on to hold other law enforcement positions in the West, his first attempt at being a sheriff had lasted only three months. September 28. On this date in history, in the year 1965, Fidel Castro announces that Cubans are free to leave the island. Six years after he led the Cuban Revolution and four years after the failed U.S.-backed Bay of Pigs invasion, Fidel Castro announces that any Cuban who wished to leave the island was free to do so. With Cuban forces no longer blocking civilians from leaving, a massive wave of emigration ensued, bringing hundreds of thousands of Cuban immigrants to Florida. Political repression had brought about Castro's revolution, but much remained the same under the new regime. As Castro became increasingly vocal about his belief in socialism and opposition to American imperialism, he faced dissent from political opponents at home and hostility from the American political establishment. The year after the Bay of Pigs, the United States and Soviet Union nearly went to war over the latter's placement of nuclear missiles on the island. Due to the recent hostilities, many Americans assumed Castro was behind the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963 although no such evidence has ever emerged. Castro refused to allow Cubans to leave for America, although a number of dissenters and supporters of the deposed Batista regime did succeed in escaping. With further anti-government protests and widespread poverty, due in part to the American embargo on all trade with Cuba, Castro believed his society was close to the breaking point. He therefore announced on September 28 that those who wished to leave were free to do so. Immediately, several thousand refugees boarded boats at the port of Camarilca, leading to the haphazard crossing that threatened to overcome the U.S. Coast Guard and immigration authorities. As the continuation of such perilous crossings was in neither's interest, the U.S. and Cuba engaged in surprisingly cooperative negotiations, resulting in the Freedom Flights Airlift Program. For the next eight years, ten flights a week left Cuba for Miami, and many Cubans waited years for their spot on the planes. Roughly 300,000 people made the trip. This mass movement of people had several major effects on both countries. Castro was able to rid the island of many dissenters, although their departure was a propaganda victory for the Americans and may have led to significant brain drain in Cuba. It also markedly changed the demographics of Miami 
It was during this period that the city's little Havana neighborhood became a permanent enclave for Cuban culture. September 29, on this date in history in the year 1995, Mexican-American voting rights advocate Willie Velasquez awarded Presidential Medal of Freedom. Voting rights advocate Willie Velasquez is posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Velasquez and the organizations he founded are credited with dramatically increasing political awareness and participation among the Hispanic communities of the southwestern United States. The son of a union organizer, Velasquez was one of five founders of the Mexican-American Youth Organization, or MAYO. Beginning with voter registration drives and walkouts on college campuses around San Antonio, Mayo expanded to organizing high school students and even succeeded in electing several candidates to local school boards. Inspired by groups like the Black Panthers and leaders like Malcolm X, some of Mayo's members went on to form the Raza Unida Party, a party that aimed to elect Hispanic candidates without relying on either the Republican or Democratic establishments. Velasquez worked as a boycott coordinator for the United Farm Workers, a union that organized farm workers across the Southwest and drew national attention to their working conditions in the late 1960s. He then went to work for RASA before embarking upon the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project in 1972. SVREP, whose motto was, Su vota su voz, your vote is your voice sought to address the poor voter turnout, voter apathy, and institutional disenfranchisement that affected the Hispanic-American community. Velazquez believed that the Hispanic community had much to learn from the civil rights movement and sought to address many of the same systemic issues as prominent leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. Though he would not live to see the full effects of his work, he died suddenly of cancer at the age of 44. Willie Velasquez certainly achieved his goal of activating the Hispanic electorate. Today, SVREP claims to have registered over 2.7 million voters, trained over 150,000 political activists, and won over 100 civil rights lawsuits. Though Hispanic voter turnout is often significantly lower than turnout among whites, it has risen sharply in recent decades increasing tenfold from 1.3 million in the 1994 general election to 13.5 million in 2016. In his White House speech honoring Velasquez, then-President Bill Clinton called Willie a name synonymous with democracy in America. September 30. On this date in history, in the year 2005, Michael Eisner resigns as Disney's CEO. During Eisner's 21-year tenure with Disney, he helped transform it into an entertainment industry giant whose properties included films, theme parks, and a cruise line, television networks, and sports teams. Eisner also presided over a golden age of animation, during which Disney produced such blockbuster films as Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King and became a merchandising powerhouse. Michael Eisner was born on March 7, 1942, in New York. After graduating from Denison University in 1964, he worked his way up through the programming ranks in network television. In 1976, the chairman of the board at Paramount Pictures, Barry Diller, hired Eisner as the company's president and CEO. During Eisner's time at Paramount in the late 1970s and early 1980s, the studio produced such hit films as Raiders of the Lost Ark, Flashdance, Saturday Night Fever, Grease, Footloose, Ordinary People, 
Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, Terms of Endearment, and An Officer and a Gentleman. Amidst all his success, Eisner became involved with a lawsuit concerning the former Disney movie studio head, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and a multi-million dollar severance package given to Michael Ovitz, who briefly served as Disney's president under Eisner. In 2004, Roy Disney, nephew of the company's founder, resigned his board seat to protest what he reportedly perceived as Eisner's mismanagement. At the time, Disney's stock was down and its ABC TV network was doing poorly in the ratings. At a March 2004 meeting, 43% of the voting shareholders expressed their lack of confidence in Eisner, and a new chairman of the board was appointed. Eisner stayed on as the company's CEO for the next year and a half, until formally stepping down on September 30, 2005. His former second-in-command, Robert Iger, succeeded him. Iger stepped down in 2020 and was replaced by Bob Chapik. October 1. On this date in history in the year 1890, Yosemite National Park is established. An act of Congress creates Yosemite National Park, home of such natural wonders as Half Dome and the giant sequoia trees. Environmental trailblazer John Muir and his colleagues campaigned for the Congressional Action, which was signed into law by President Benjamin Harrison and paved the way for generations of hikers, campers, and nature lovers, along with countless Don't Feed the Bears signs. Native Americans were the main residents of the Yosemite Valley, located in California's Sierra Nevada mountain range until the 1849 gold rush brought thousands of non-indigenous miners and settlers to the region tourists, and damage to Yosemite Valley's ecosystem followed. In 1864, to ward off further commercial exploitation, conservationists convinced President Abraham Lincoln to declare Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove of Giant Sequoias a public trust of California. This marked the first time the U.S. government protected land for public enjoyment, and it laid the foundation for the establishment of the national and state park systems. Yellowstone became America's first national park in 1872. In 1889, John Muir discovered that the vast meadows surrounding Yosemite Valley, which lacked government protection, were being overrun and destroyed by domestic sheep grazing. Muir and Robert Underwood Johnson, a fellow environmentalist and influential magazine editor, lobbied for national park status for the large wilderness area around Yosemite Valley. On October 1 of the following year, Congress set aside over 1,500 square miles of land, about the size of Rhode Island, for what would become Yosemite National Park, America's third national park. In 1906, the state-controlled Yosemite Valley and Mariposa Grove came under federal jurisdiction with the rest of the park. Yosemite's natural beauty is immoralized in the black-and-white landscape photographs of Ansel Adams, who, at one point, lived in the park, and spent years photographing it. Today, over 3 million people get back to nature annually at Yosemite and check out such stunning landmarks as the 2,425-foot-high Yosemite Falls, one of the world's tallest waterfalls, rock formations, Half Dome, and El Capitan, the largest granite monolith in the United States, and the tree groves of the giant sequoias, the world's biggest trees. October 2. On this date in history, in the year 1944, 
Warsaw Uprising Ends. The Warsaw Uprising ends on October 2, 1944, with the surrender of the surviving Polish rebels to German forces. Two months earlier, the approach of the Red Army to Warsaw prompted Polish resistance forces to launch a rebellion against the Nazi occupation. The rebels, who supported the democratic Polish government in exile in London, hoped to gain control of the city before the Soviets liberated it. The Poles feared that if they failed to take the city, the Soviet conquerors would forcibly set up a pro-Soviet communist regime in Poland. The poorly supplied Poles made early gains against the Germans, but Nazi leader Adolf Hitler sent reinforcements. In brutal street fighting, the Poles were gradually overcome by superior German weaponry. Meanwhile, the Red Army occupied a suburb of Warsaw, but made no efforts to aid the Polish rebels. The Soviets also rejected a request by the British to use Soviet airbases to airlift supplies to the beleaguered Poles. After 63 days, the Poles, out of arms, supplies, food, and water, were forced to surrender. In the aftermath, the Nazis deported much of Warsaw's population and destroyed the city. With protesters in Warsaw out of the way, the Soviets faced little organized opposition in establishing a communist government in Poland. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for September 26 through October 2. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to visit us on social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.